This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. For the past few weeks, we have been in a series called Be Thou Our Vision. And we've been looking at... uh, at different parts of the vision that God has called His church to. And today we're going to look at Acts chapter 1. And we're going to talk about where that vision is to take place in our community and around the world. Acts chapter 1. And we're going to actually read the first 11 verses of the first chapter of the book of Acts. So if you would take your copy of God's Word or use one of the Bibles provided for you in the pew, and let's look at that passage together. Acts chapter 1, and let's look at verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me. Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. By many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we see here the mission that you have called us to between your first coming and your second coming, We pray that you would make us faithful to this vision. Help us to remember that everything that we do as a church family, and certainly the whole reason for the project that we've dedicated to your glory today, is to help us to carry out this mission to reach people in this community and around the world for Christ. Show us the vision afresh and anew today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the many things, many great things about living in our state is that we get to experience four distinct seasons of the year. And I like all of them. But uh, I think maybe this time of year is, is maybe my favorite time of year. And especially when we get a week like this past week, when the temperatures dip into the 50s at night and we begin to feel that first crisp wave of fall. And uh, 
when I was growing up, we used to do quite a bit of camping. And my favorite thing about camping in the fall were the bonfires that we would build. And it was just cold enough at night uh, so that the, the warmth of that fire felt so good against the, the nighttime chill. The text that we just read is about a fire. It's about a Holy Spirit-fueled fire as the fire of the gospel spreads around the world. The Swiss theologian Emil Brunner once said, A church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. In other words, when the flame goes out, the fire no longer exists. And when a church loses its mission within a couple of generations, that church will no longer exist because a church exists by its mission as a fire exists by burning. When we lose the mission, eventually we lose the church. And that is happening tragically in thousands of churches throughout North America and in Western Europe. As instead of renovating or expanding their church properties, churches are selling off their property to be turned into community centers or in many cases, especially in Western Europe, into mosques. This week, I stood at one of the windows in our new Welcome Center and watched as the letters for our new church sign were put up. But as that happened, I couldn't help but think about a sign that I had heard about that was going up outside of one of the many church buildings in our nation that were closing their doors for good. And someone put up on that sign, that church sign, going out of business. We forgot what our business was. This text is about our business. It's about the mission that God has called us to. Now, at First Baptist, we've tried to, to sum up what the Bible says about our mission in one succinct statement. We've said that we exist as a church to glorify Christ by making disciples who make disciples in our community and around the world. And what I want to do today is really to bring the three parts of that statement together. The first reason for our existence is this, is to glorify Christ. That's the what of our mission. That's the ultimate what of our mission. It's to glorify Christ. Now, Luke tells us here in our text in verse 1 that in the first book, which was the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Christianity is about Christ. It is about God and His activity, foremost and ultimately, not about us and our activity. That's the difference between Christianity and religion, by the way. Religion is spelled D-O. It's what people do to try to make themselves right with God. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's what God has done in Jesus Christ to make us right with Him. The Bible does not teach that we are basically good people who just need to get better and try harder. The Bible teaches that we are all ruined sinners in need of a Savior. You know, I love the fact that our 
church looks like a church. <laughs> I love the fact that our sanctuary uh, feels like a sanctuary. It feels like a sacred space. I love the fact that Jesus is right in the center of it. I love the fact that even when you walk into our new welcome center, that you see depictions of Jesus. I think that matches our theology. I think it matches what the Bible teaches because we do not exist as a church to give good advice about how our lives can be tweaked. We exist as a church to give good news about a Savior who can transform lives. It's about Jesus. It's about His work. And Luke here tells us about the, the work of, of Christ. He says here in verse 3 that after His suffering, the suffering of Christ, and Luke here is talking about the cross of Christ. And he is not primarily referring to the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross, although that was horrendous. He's talking about the suffering that Jesus endured because on the cross He was bearing our sins. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And 1 Peter 2.24 says that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And we cannot begin to understand the cross of Christ without understanding the holiness of God as we sung about earlier. God is holy. He is thrice holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Holy. And because He is holy, He cannot wink at evil. He cannot shove it beneath the rug. Because God is holy and righteous, sin and evil have to be condemned. We would not want to worship a God who did not deal with evil, a God who did not punish sin, a God who could just wink at sin. We would not worship a God like that. But here's the problem. Sin is not just something that is out there. The Bible says that sin is something that is in here. In each one of our hearts, we are shot through with the condition of sin. And it's not just that we commit sins. It's that we are all sinners in our very nature. And that has expressed itself in the fact that we have all failed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have all failed miserably to love our neighbors as ourselves. The Bible says we're all sinners. And God could, would have been perfectly righteous and just simply to allow us to take our, the, the condemnation for our sins that we deserve. But God is not only holy, God is loving. He's love. And because He is loving, God became a human being. And He allowed the condemnation that was due to us for our sins to be poured out on Him. God took His own righteous wrath against sin. He allowed it to be poured out on Him on the cross as He suffered 
in our place. That's what Luke means here when he talks about the suffering of Christ. But he not only talks about his suffering, he talks about his resurrection. He says after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus rose. Now the the tense here in the original Greek when it says that Jesus gave them many convincing proofs, literally it means that he kept giving them many convincing proofs. Why? Well, you know, we we, we sometimes fancy ourselves as modern people, you know, that... uh, uh, you know, first century people like, like the people in, in Jesus' day. Uh, you know, lots of people today say, well, you know, they were sort of simple, primitive folk and uh, ignorant folk. And, and, you know, it was easy for them to believe in things like the resurrection. That's what C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery. And scholarship has conclusively demonstrated that... Um, for people in the first century, they were no more disposed to believe in the resurrection than people are in the 21st century. But, and so Jesus had to keep giving them convincing proofs that he was alive. But eventually, they came to the conclusion that he was alive. And they believed in his resurrection all the way down to their core, so much so that they were willing to go forth and give their lives and die for it. Would they have done that for what they knew to be a lie? They did it because they knew it was the truth. They, they knew the truth of 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, As Paul says there, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul uses here a harvest imagery. You know, it's harvest time now. The first fruits of the harvest is the the, the first part of the harvest that comes in. And the first part of the harvest, the first fruits, is like the guarantee that the remainder of the harvest is coming. And Paul says the resurrection of Jesus was like that. The resurrection of Jesus was the prototype of the resurrection of his people. The resurrection of Christ was the first fruits and it was the guarantee that one day all believers in Jesus are also going to be raised. And as we read in verse 11, Jesus who ascended into heaven is going to one day come from heaven. When he does, his people, believers in Jesus are going to be raised and we're going to have a body like his. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. You see, Jesus rose with a glorified resurrection body. And when He returns, believers in Jesus are going to have bodies like that, bodies that are not subject to cancer cells, Bodies not subject to the ravages of aging. Not subject to Alzheimer's. Imperishable bodies. Just this week in this very room, we said a temporary goodbye to two brothers in Christ at their funeral services. And we know that as 2 Corinthians 5.8 teaches, we know that they along with every believer who has died in Jesus, 
are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. But we also know that one day, those who sleep in Jesus are not going to be absent from the body anymore. We're going to have new bodies. Resurrected bodies. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable must put on the imperishable. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Now our mission is to go forth and to share that good news with others. That is the the second part of our mission. It's the how of the mission. How do we glorify Christ? It's by making disciples who make disciples. Now, last week, we looked at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And the imperative command there in Matthew 28:19 is, Go therefore and make disciples to hear the good news of Jesus. And not share it with other people would be cruelty. And we're not called to cruelty. We're called to love. A disciple is a learner. We don't know it all. We haven't arrived. We're still in the process of growing and learning more about Jesus. But the more that we learn about Jesus, the more that we love other people. The pioneer missionary to Persia Henry Martin said this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. The closer that we get to Jesus, the more that he transforms us from narcissists who are always looking at ourselves, looking inward at us, into people who are looking out looking up to Him in faith and out to our neighbor in love. And the more that we look up to God in faith, the more that we look out to our neighbor in love. And the more that we understand that we're to take the message of Jesus to other people. Now where are we to do that? That's the third part. The where of the mission. Where do we do it? We're called to do it in our community and around the world. Jesus says here in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus here talks about power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You know, to hear many Christians talk, you would think that God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit primarily just so we can have powerful spiritual experiences ourselves. But that's not the primary reason God gives us the Holy Spirit. The primary reason God gives us His Holy Spirit is that we would be empowered to take the message of the gospel to other people. The word power here in Greek is the word dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite. The inventor of dynamite was a man named Alfred Nobel, the Swedish chemist, who made a fortune because his invention of dynamite was used to manufacture weapons of warfare. One day in 1888, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, woke up, picked up the paper, and read his own obituary. 
You see, his brother Ludwig had died in France, but a French editor had confused the news. He thought Alfred Nobel had died. And he entitled Alfred Nobel's obituary, The Merchant of Death is Dead. And Alfred Nobel read his own obituary and he thought, is this how I'm going to be remembered? The Merchant of Death? And so he decided at that moment to begin taking part of his fortune and using it to fund awards for people whose work had, would benefit humanity in some way. We call them today Nobel Prizes. TNT Dynamite is often used for the purpose of death. The dynamite power of the Holy Spirit is used to bring life to people. Life abundant. Life eternal. That's what we're called to bring to people as Christ's witnesses. He says here that you will be my witnesses. Now a witness does what? A witness takes the stand. And a witness promises to tell the truth. The whole truth. Nothing but the truth. A Christian witness is to take the truth of the gospel to others. How devoted are we to be to that truth? Well, the Greek word here that is translated as witnesses is the word martyrs. You don't have to stretch far to understand what English word comes from that. It's the word martyrs. We're to be willing to die for this truth. And increasingly over the past couple of years, as news has trickled in and ISIS has advanced... We have heard of more and more brothers and sisters in Christ being martyred because of their devotion to the truth of the gospel. Our church has seen this more personally than most as one who is directly related to our church, one that we know and love, has come very close to being martyred and has had close friends and colleagues who have been martyred. We do not meet here week after week in comfortable surroundings to forget our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ overseas. We stand with them. We support them. As we'll continue to talk about in a moment. The call is to be His witnesses where? In Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As Jesus speaks here on this day, He's speaking at a place right outside the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says that it's, the gospel is going to go forth from here in concentric circles. So it's going to begin here in Jerusalem, but then it's going to expand out to Judea, to Samaria, to the end of the earth. That's still the calling. It begins in our Jerusalem, which is our community. Kent Hughes says this, There can be no burden for distant, unreached peoples without a burden for unreached neighbors. That's why our, our mission statement says that, that we're to make disciples who make disciples in our community and around the world. It has to begin in our 
community. We're to have a heart for our community. Now let no one say of this project, if you build it, they will come. The community will come. That may have been true to a certain extent in the 1950s. It most certainly is not the case today. It is not. What our project does do is that it enables us, once people are here, to better make disciples who make disciples. It enables our facilities to be a help rather than a hindrance as we seek to do that. But it is not true that people are just going to come. That's not the world we're living in anymore. The America of 2015 is far more like the first century than the America of the 1950s. We have to get out and be His witnesses. That, that means that we have to be very intentional about engaging in the lives of people who don't know the Savior. It, it means that we're on mission every day of our lives. It means that we wake up in the morning and we understand that we're called that day to be an agent of God in our neighborhoods, on our jobs, in our schools, in our circles of influence. It means that we care about people. It means that we don't just hang around Christians all the time. It means that we become deeply engaged of, in the lives of unchurched people. Sharing the gospel with them, yes. Loving them. Serving them. Because people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. And as we love and we serve people in the name of Jesus, they're more apt to listen to us when we speak the name of Jesus. We want to get more and more involved in taking the good news of Jesus to our community, knowing our community, plunging deep into our community. It's our Jerusalem. We're called to reach our Judea, which for us would be like the Commonwealth of Virginia, through our involvement with our state convention of Baptists and the generosity of people in our church as we give week by week, we are involved in the planting of new congregations in this incredibly diverse state, in urban centers like Northern Virginia, Richmond, the 757, and doing missionary work in rural hamlets like Coburn, where a team of our people has, has been that's our Judea. We're called to our Samaria, which is North America. Our nation, our nation itself, has become one of the biggest mission fields on earth. Through our church's generous support of the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, we are planting churches throughout North America and especially in the mega cities of North America that have so few gospel churches. And through our direct involvement, we can see the incredible diversity of the work that is happening in North America. In just the past year, teams from our church have been places as diverse as Syracuse, New York, where we're partnering with the neighborhood church to reach people who are being reached off the streets, literally, to places like City on a Hill Church in Boston, Massachusetts, which is reaching students and graduates of MIT and Harvard. 
and a team that has gone to Appalachia, to the poor, the rural poor of Appalachia with the gospel. We can see the need and we can see the diversity of the needs in North America just through the the teams that have gone forth from this church and through the North American Mission Board. Our reach is far greater. But the call is to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And as we saw last week, Jesus tells us here in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, when we think of nations, we tend to think of political nation states. That is a modern phenomenon. As Jesus was speaking these words in the first century, nation states as we currently could think of them did not exist. Empires existed and people groups within those empires existed. People groups that were characterized by a certain culture, a certain language. And it's very clear that that's what Jesus was talking about. He said, I want you to go and make disciples of all the peoples. Now currently, there are more than 6,000 people groups on planet Earth that know almost nothing or nothing of the good news of Jesus. They are classified as unreached. Almost 3,000 of those groups don't even have a missionary that is serving within the group They are not only unreached, but unengaged with the gospel. Now, I would ask you, should the fact that you happen to be born in a part of the world with little or no access to the gospel exclude you from being able to hear the good news of Jesus? Jesus says no. And we say no. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says this, the priority for the church until Jesus returns, a mission of which the community must never lose sight, is to witness to Jesus to the end of the earth. Now how do we do this? We go. In just the past couple of years, people and teams from our church have gone to Thailand, Cambodia, China, India, Guatemala, Romania, Israel, Haiti, North Africa, West Africa, and South Africa. Some on short-term trips, others are there living in that mission field. And so we go. People from our church go. Some short-term, some long-term. And through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, we support a team of between four and 5,000 who go. The call is to go. And increasingly in the years ahead, our church will be involved in going. We go and we send. Not everyone can personally go. But everyone can be a direct part of the team By sending others, enabling others to go. Those who go must be sent. 
And everyone can be a part of the sending. This church has been incredibly generous in sending the teams to go forth from this church. And generous in sending that larger team of between four and 5,000 who are there on a career basis, far more than that, who are there for shorter term stints, two years, shorter terms, as we give generously to support week by week the International Mission Board through the cooperative program as we give through our Lottie Moon offering to support that team, to send and sustain that team with the goal that all peoples might know the Savior. You know, that's really why our denomination exists. That is, that is the reason that our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, exists. It was formed for the purpose of sending and sustaining missionaries that could go forth and reach every people group on earth for Christ. Baptists got together in 1845 and this group said, you know, we can do more together than what we could ever do as individual churches. And so let's get together. And let's pool our resources and let, let's form this community of churches, the Southern Baptist Convention. And together... Let's go forth and send and support missionaries that every people group on earth might have the opportunity to know the Savior. That's why the Southern Baptist Convention came into being on May 8, 1845 in Augusta, Georgia. That day, 328 delegates from eight states and the District of Columbia gathered together to form the Southern Baptist Convention and to say, let's together seek to reach the nations for Christ. One of those 328 delegates who was there on May 8, 1845 in Augusta, Georgia, one of those 328 delegates was Reuben Jones, the pastor of this church. He had been sent to that first meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention by the local church that he pastored, the First Baptist Church of Suffolk. Since 1827, the heart of this church is to reach men and women, boys and girls around the world for Jesus. May that continue until Jesus comes. And He is coming. And until that time, He calls us to be going by His grace and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the privilege of being able to join with You in the greatest enterprise that is happening around the world. We thank You that as a church family, that we, you've called us into this family as we do life together as a faith family. How we thank you for the support and the love that we know from our friends here, from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that has knit us together 
even closer than blood kin as a faith family. And we thank you for the purpose, the mission, the vision that you have given us to be with you, with Christ after the lost in our community and around the world. Lord, make us faithful. Make us faithful. Make us faithful to give, to pray, to go, to send as your mission is carried out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you're here today and the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart about knowing Christ. If that's the case, we would love to pray with you, to talk with you more about what that means. Maybe today God's working in your heart and you say, I want to be a, I want to be a part of this church family and, and seek membership here. Then we would invite you as others stand in just a moment to step out. And we would love to welcome you. If we can serve you or pray for you in any way, it would be our heart to do that. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as His beloved child, His very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father. And you are His child. You say, I love Him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.